take your Bibles out and turn with me to the book of Revelation as we continue our series through uh, the final closing chapters in the book. Now, as I told you last week, we're finally in those sections of Scripture with uh, good news. Amen? I mean, week after week, we'd been in the tribulation events and uh, just saw one thing after another being unleashed upon the face of the earth. And uh, last week we turned that corner and talked about the second coming of Christ. And uh, this week talk about the millennial rule of uh, Christ. And uh, then next week we get into those chapters 21-22 where we focus in on one of our favorite topics. And that's heaven. You want to talk about heaven? Amen. That's something good to talk about, isn't it? So anyway, the book ends on the highest of notes. And so we're in that glorious uh, section now that began, that, that began with last week's. Well, would you stand for the reading of God's word, please? Again, we want to pick up in verse 1 of chapter uh, 20. And... Uh, the theme today is peace on earth, glory to God in the highest. John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended after that he must be released for a little while then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now folks, I want to stop right there a second just to clue you in on something. The first half of the message today, we're going to be more like the classroom, okay? We're going to be more academic. There's a reason for that, I'll explain. The second half of the message... We'll return to the sanctuary and the pulpit and it'll be more sermonic. So when we get to those four points of the message, we'll move pretty quickly through those. Now there's a reason I want to take that approach and be more academic up front. Because these verses that we've just read, these first six verses, okay? Explain the reason why. There are so many different views to the book of Revelation. Have you ever wondered why there are so many different views to the book of Revelation? Well, those six verses are the reason why. When we talk about the millennium. And what you do with these six verses not only determines how you interpret the book of Revelation, but it determines how you interpret much of prophecy, even prophecy in the Old Testament. And so we're going to spend a little bit more time in these first six verses talking about some of those major views. Let's read again verse 7. When the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. 
But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Father, help us to understand as we read this portion of the scripture that this world is not out of control. We look at the news, we look at the headlines oftentimes and it would appear that things are just chaotic and spinning out of control. And we might be tempted to ask, where is God? Lord, help us to understand that with your finger you are writing human history. You are in control of the events of this earth. And one of these days you're going to wrap things up according to your sovereign plan. Father, I pray that there's even one here today who is not prepared to stand before Jesus Christ. That your Holy Spirit would move upon their heart today. That they would understand what the Bible says that behold, today is the day of salvation. And that you would draw them to faith in Christ. Lord, help those who have made that decision to live every moment of their lives as though this could be the last moment before Christ returns for his bride, the church. Open our eyes now, open our ears, our hearts, our understanding. Help us to see and to learn the precious things you have for us in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want you to understand, or I want you to imagine rather, a world where there is no depravity. No depravity and no evil whatsoever. Imagine a world where there is no need for policemen because there is no crime, there's no murder. No rape, no burglary, no theft, no assault, no prisons. Imagine a world where it is safer to walk through the roughest part of town in the middle of the night than it is to sit today in a church pew in the broadest daylight. Imagine a world where there is no disease and no hospitals because no one is sick. Imagine a world where there is no devil. Now you say, well that sounds like an imaginary utopia. Actually it's better than that because we're talking about a little bit of heaven on earth. When Jesus was born, the angels announced peace on earth. Well, folks, that is literally going to happen one day. We are going to be given a glimpse of the way this world was intended to be before sin entered into the picture. Even the Old Testament spoke of such a time. I want to read just one passage that refers to that. Isaiah 11, 6 through 9, the Bible says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. 
The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now folks, that's the period of time that Revelation 20 speaks of. It is referred to as the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Now the word millennial is not in the text here. It comes from two Latin words. Melee uh, meaning a thousand and Anum meaning year. And so it refers to that period of time that is a thousand years. This kingdom will be a worldwide display of Christ's glory when all of nature will be set free from the bondage of sin. You'll remember in Romans chapter 8 the apostle Paul wrote of that. He said, even now all of creation is groaning. All of the created order is groaning. It is longing for the day of redemption of the children of God. It's going to be the answer to the petition in the Lord's Prayer that the saints have prayed all down throughout the church age. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The saints are going to finally see what they've been missing. Now please indulge me the next few minutes. I just want you to understand the different frameworks that people use as they interpret Revelation 20. You see, not everybody that you read uh, on this passage is going to interpret this passage the same. And if you can understand the different schools of thought, it will help you. And so while the next few minutes will not advance the sermon through the verses, it will help you to understand sermons that you hear on these verses and books that you read. And it's going to help you understand a lot of what you read about the book of Revelation and about prophecy in the Bible. I also want to point out that pastors and scholars who have friends in a camp besides their own, they remain good friends. These matters, matters of eschatology, should not divide us. And that's why, for instance... An R.C. Sproul and a John MacArthur can be great friends. That's why a Paige Patterson and an Al Mohler can be great friends. These are wonderful men who are great scholars and they have opposing views on what we're going to talk about. But to this day they remain great friends. You might be tempted to ask, well, why should we even study this then? Why study eschatology? Eschatology has to do with the end times. And what the Bible says about the end times. Why even bother? Well, it matters because what you do with eschatology is going to determine how you interpret other issues in the Bible as well. You see, one area of theology and and how you interpret one, one section of theology will determine how you interpret another section of theology. Well, with that said, let's talk about the three main schools of interpretation when it comes to eschatology. And the first one I want to talk about is the one that I hold to. It is the school of thought known as premillennialism. Now, when we take the events of Revelation 20 at face value, it leads naturally to a premillennial view of eschatology. Premillennialism says that Christ will return at the end of the tribulation and then establish a literal kingdom on earth which will last for a thousand years. 
And so in the premillennial view, the scripture is allowed to say exactly what it says and it is interpreted at face value. Now folks, don't confuse the millennium with the tribulation. Occasionally I will hear somebody say, yes, I am premillennial. I do not believe the church will go through the tribulation. I want you to understand though that is an entirely separate issue. You can be post-trib and still premillennial. In other words, you can believe the church will go through the tribulation, hence you are post-trib, Jesus returning after the tribulation, and still believe that Jesus is going to return at the end of the tribulation and set up his millennial rule. In fact, there is the pre-trib, pre-millennial position, There is the mid-trib. You believe Jesus is going to come back for his church at the midpoint of the tribulation, three and a half years in. You can be mid-trib, pre-millennial. You can be pre-wrath, pre-millennial. Or you can be post-trib, pre-millennial. All of those fall under the category of the premillennial perspective. And so again, do not confuse the tribulation and the millennium. They are two entirely separate issues. Now with the exception of the church father Origen, who spiritualized and allegorized much of the scripture... The premillennial view of the end times was the position of the early church for the first 300 years. Now there's also two other main views of the millennium. Again, I don't subscribe to either view. I just want you to know what they are. The first is postmillennialism. Now this is a school of thought that was almost dead and gone but in recent years it has begun to make a little bit of a revival. Now postmillennialism is the opposite of premillennialism whereas premillennialism teaches that Christ will return and set up his earthly rule Postmillennialism teaches that Christ will return at the end of the millennium, that is, after the millennium. The postmillennialist believes that through the preaching of the gospel and the good deeds of the church, the world is going to become a better and better place. We are going to usher in a golden age of peace and harmony and goodwill and men are going to love one another more and more and men are going to do good to one another more and more. And then at the end of this thousand year golden age Christ is going to return to a Christianized planet. And so the millennium will be ushered in not by the Lord but by the church. Jesus will return and Christians will hand over to the Lord Jesus a renewed and peaceful planet. Now you say, Scott, where in the world did such an idealistic, optimistic idea come from? Well, you've got to understand the context of postmillennialism and understand that back in a previous generation, even many conservative Bible scholars were postmillennial. During the 1700s, the 1800s, the 1900s, the world had come through the period of time known as the Enlightenment. Many cures were being developed for diseases, hospitals were being built, institutions of higher learning were being built by many dedicated Christians and Christians were out there in the front lines of improving much of the conditions in the world. 
Much of the world was responding to Christianity. Missionary societies were being formed. And there was a general optimism in the church about the progress of the Great Commission. Now it was, it was within that context that post-millennialism developed. And so post-millennialism is rather late. It's a latecomer to the theological scene. Well, what happened? World War I happened and then World War II happened. Deranged dictators came on the scene and conflicts and crime began to flourish again. And the optimistic view of post-millennialism was dashed. Plus... Some Christians, as they began reading certain passages in the Scripture, they changed their view. They realized that certain passages did not accord very well, did not harmonize very well with post-millennialism. For instance, 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says to Timothy, in the last days, he didn't say in the last days a golden age will appear. He said, in the last days, perilous times will come. It seems like the New Testament is saying as time goes on, things are going to get worse, not better. He goes on there in 2 Timothy chapter 4 when he's commissioning Timothy to go out and preach the gospel. He says, Timothy, you need to preach the gospel right now while you have the opportunity to do so because the age is going to come when men are not going to receive sound doctrine. They're going to accumulate to themselves teachers who will scratch their itching ears and tell them only the things that they want to hear. Well, post-millennialism fell on hard times and another school of thought came along to replace it. That third school of thought that came along, or actually been around for a long time, is known as amillennialism. Amillennialists do not take this passage in Revelation 20 literally. They do not believe in a literal thousand year reign. That's indicated by their name, amillennialism. The alpha privative is put on the front of millennial making it a negative. Thus they go from millennialism to amillennialism meaning no millennium. But actually let me say that that name is not really fair. It's misleading. You see they do in fact believe in a millennium. They just spiritualize it. They say that we are in the thousand year millennial reign of Christ right now. They believe that the whole period of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming is the millennial reign of Christ and Christ is ruling his saints from heaven. And so under all millennialism there is no such thing as a rapture. At the end of the tribulation, Christ will return to usher in eternity, heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. There will only be one general resurrection and one general judgment. Now without a doubt, amillennialism is the simplest of all the views of eschatology. And let me be honest, it is the majority position of the church today. And that's why I'm spending more time on it. Some of that is due to the fact that Roman Catholicism largely holds to amillennialism. And they're the largest group of professing believers. And also amillennialism was the view of the reformers. And so along with Roman Catholicism, many Protestants believe it as well. Now the church father Origen held to this and it was perhaps first developed most thoroughly by Augustine. Both Origen and Augustine had been deeply influenced by Greek philosophy. In Greek philosophy, remember, all matter is evil. 
Only that which is spiritual is good. And so it's believed that that may have played in to some degree their views, Origen and Augustine's view, as they disagreed with the premillennial position because in the premillennial position you have a literal, physical millennial. Now let me say that some of the finest biblical scholars in the world today are amillennialists. Some of my favorite writers are amillennialists. So again, don't split fellowship over this issue. Now there are some problems that premillennialists have with amillennialists. Some amillennialists, like the reformers and like premillennialists, Take the scripture literally, which is good. They believe in the historical grammatical approach to Bible interpretation known as hermeneutics. They believe in studying the Bible in context and letting the Bible say what the Bible says. Again, that's good. But when it comes to prophecy, when it comes to eschatology... All of a sudden, the amillennialist changes gears from a literal hermeneutic to a spiritual or a symbolic hermeneutic. And so the very ones who argue against that approach turn around and do it. And so, for example, all of the promises to Israel in the Old Testament are now promises to the church. And all the prophecies that appear to promise Israel a future are now simply promises given to the body of Christ. And they assign many other elements of prophecy a spiritual meaning. Another example of what they do in our text today, when John in verses 5 to 6 speaks of the first resurrection, the amillennialist has to do some spiritualizing here and say that the first resurrection is when somebody becomes a Christian. And so the moment of your conversion. Think back with me when you you were saved. Maybe it was at a youth camp or maybe it was in a revival service or maybe just one night you got down on your knees at your bedside and you gave your heart and life to the Lord Jesus Christ and you were born again. Many amillennialists will say that was the first resurrection. But they immediately run into a problem with that. You see, many of those who take part in the first resurrection are those who were martyred for their faith in Christ during the tribulation. Thus, they were martyred because they were believers. That's the natural reading of of the book of Revelation. They were martyred because they were believers. They took part in the first resurrection because they belonged to Christ. But in the amillennialist scheme here, you would have to have the unsaved being martyred for their faith in Jesus. And then they're born again, which makes no sense whatsoever. Even some of their own writers acknowledge that a a literal hermeneutic applied to prophecy and eschatology leads one to a premillennial understanding. They even agree with that. Another problem with all millennialism is dealing with the fact that we're told here that Satan is bound during the thousand year millennial reign of Christ. And so they say right now Satan is bound. They say that his activity has been limited in the sense that he cannot prevent the gospel from going to the nations. And so he's bound in that sense. But folks, that's always been the case. Satan has never been able to prevent God's message from going to the nations. And so that's nothing new. All you've got to think about is the book of Esther, for example, or the book of Daniel. God's message of salvation has always gone out to the nations. And so that's nothing new. 
Plus, if Satan is now chained, it must be a mighty long leash that God has him on. As somebody has well said, if he's now chained, God help us if he ever gets loose. And then you have like 1 Peter 5, for instance, where Peter says Satan is as a roaring lion and he's roaming to and fro in the earth seeking somebody to devour. That's language and imagery that certainly doesn't leave one with the impression that he's chained or that he's bound. And then Paul says in Ephesians 6 that we are engaged in spiritual warfare where we fight not simply against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers in high places. We're engaged in this warfare with the enemy. And so again a natural reading of the Bible would lead one to hold to the premillennial position. Well, I want you to see first, now that we finally arrive at the sermon, I want you to see first of all the binding of Satan. In verse 1, John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that he must be released for a little while. Notice how Satan is described here. He is presented as a real person. Some people want to deny that he is real. They think the devil is maybe just symbolic for all the evil and bad things that go on in the earth. And and we need to find a name for all the evil and bad things that go on in the earth. And so we call him Satan. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible presents the devil as a personality who is opposed to God and opposed to God's people. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden. We see Adam and Eve there in the garden. And God saying you can eat from all the trees of the garden except this one. Who comes along? The devil comes along. And he tempts them to eat of the forbidden uh, tree. He's presented there as a real personality. Jesus said Satan is a liar and the father of lies. He didn't call the devil some impersonal force. And then in the book of Job, we see in the book of Job when the angels came before God, there was Satan too. And God said to Satan, where where do you come here from? And he said, from roaming to and fro in the earth. And God said to him, have you considered my servant Job? And so consistently through the Bible, Satan is presented as being a real personality. And that's exactly what we see here in Revelation 20. And here Satan is removed from the scene prior to the millennial reign. The removal of the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience will dramatically change the landscape of the world. Just the fact that he is temporarily removed. I mean, just imagine the effect that that's going to have. By this time the enemies of God have been destroyed at the battle of Armageddon and here the chief spiritual enemy of God and the people of God is also taken out of the way. We see all of this happening only after the return of Christ. Here God sends an angel. Maybe Michael or Gabriel, we're not told. He sends an angel with the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. Folks, we've seen this mentioned before. Back in chapter 9, the abyss was opened and hordes of demons were turned loose to torment those on the face of the earth. I mentioned that there are demons who are loose on the earth right now, but there are also demons chained in the abyss. It was a number of those imprisoned demons that were released in Revelation chapter 9. They were in the abyss, the bottomless pit. 
The abyss seems to be a place mentioned in the Bible where the worst of the worst of the demons are locked away. The book of Jude talks about that. And you'll recall in Mark chapter 5 when Jesus was going to cast the demons out of that a garrisoned demoniac, what, the, what did the demons say? They said, our name is Legion, for we are many. And, and Lord Jesus, what do you have to do with us, Most High Son of God? They said, Jesus, please don't send us away into the abyss. Here a demon saying, we don't want to go there. And so Jesus sent them into that herd of pigs that ran over the cliff. What's the abyss? It's not hell, but it's a place of torment. Don't get the idea that Satan is cast into hell here either. The Bible says that right now he is roaming the earth and here he is going to be cast into the abyss for a thousand years and after that he'll be taken out of the abyss and then later on in this chapter we see that he's cast into the lake of fire. So while Satan is loose now, he's going to be bound. Now some millennialists want to question how you can chain a spiritual entity. And they use that to argue for a symbolic meaning of this passage. Folks, that's ridiculous reasoning. Somehow or another, God is able to bind Satan. No, the Bible doesn't get into the physical or the chemical makeup of these chains. But the Bible says somehow or another, God chains Satan. When he's bound, we're told that the nations will not be deceived for a thousand years. For a thousand years, think about it. We will not be exposed to the devil's lies. Do you ever get up these days? Do you ever have a day you feel like the devil is just all over your back about something? You ever have a day like that? Maybe you're serving the Lord and you're rejoicing, you're going along, boom, you just, I mean, you just feel like, now I know there's not a devil behind every bush. Sometimes just bad things happen from living in a fallen world. But at sometimes we just feel like the devil has attacked us. You ever been there? Sure you have. Folks, can you imagine going through a period of time where there is no devil. He's locked away. He's chained away. That's what John sees happening here. And so secondly, I want you to see the reigning of saints. Look at verses 4 to 6. John says, Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. What does John see next? He sees people reigning with Christ. Well, who are these people? I believe it's all the saints of all the ages. You have, first of all, all of those saints that have come through the tribulation, many of whom have been martyred for their faith. You have all the saints who have gone on before, people who've lost loved ones who were Christians. You have all them. And then according to Daniel 12, you even have all of the Old Testament saints in this group also. And so it's all of the redeemed of all of the ages. And the Bible says here that all of God's children are one day going to rule and reign with Him. These are the ones who are part of the first resurrection. 
it's clear that there is not one general resurrection because we are told here that the two resurrections are separated by a period of 1,000 years. You see, it's so clear. The first resurrection is for the saved. The second resurrection is for the damned. The two resurrections are not the, not the same. Those who are a part of the first resurrection, look what he says in verse 6. They are those who are blessed. Because the second death has no power over them. What's the second death? The spiritual death. The Bible says if you've only been born once, if you're seated here today listening, you've been born once, the physical death. Some Sunday, I mean the physical birth. Some Sundays I look out and see some of you, I'm not sure you've been, but you're just kind of sitting there blank stare. But if you're sitting here alive today, one thing we know for certain is you've experienced the first birth, the physical birth. Now the Bible says if that's all you have ever experienced, you're going to die twice. You're going you're to die the physical death. Could be cancer, could be a heart attack. Could be old age, any number of factors. You're going to die physically, but then you're going to die spiritually. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, a second birth, Unless he's born again, born from above where the Spirit of God gets a hold of his heart, convicts him of his sin, draws him to faith in Jesus Christ. His name's written in the, in the Lamb's book of life and he becomes a new creation in Christ. Unless you've had the second birth, you're going to die twice. But if you've been born twice, you only die once. The body dies, but the Bible says of the Christian absent from the body, present with the Lord. Romans 8 gives a wonderful commentary what happens to God's children. Paul begins in Romans 8 by saying there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He ends the chapter by saying there is no separation from the love of God to those who are in Christ Jesus. Wonderful bookends to that chapter. No condemnation, no separation. That's the glorious condition of those who have been born again. And the Bible says here we're going to reign with Christ. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25 about this in the parable of the talents. When he came back, when he returned, the servants were given more responsibilities based on what they had done with what he had already given to them. Are you being faithful now with what you've already been given? That's going to be used to determine what the Lord blesses you with during this future time. Now, folks, I realize you might be sitting there thinking, why the millennial rule? Why doesn't Jesus just simply take us to heaven and begin eternity immediately? We're not told. The book of Deuteronomy says the secret things belong only to the Lord. We're not told everything in the Word of God, only that which we need to know. But I think we can speculate a little bit. I think it's to show us how God created things to be on the earth originally. What would have happened had our first parents never fallen into sin? And for all of those people who ever wonder why doesn't God put an end to all the evil and suffering on the face of the earth, they're finally going to get their answer. They're going to see God put an end to evil and suffering and they're going to actually enjoy things the way God created them to be. Don't you long for the day when you'll see Jesus and be like Him? 
Don't you long for that day? Don't you long for the day when you're no longer in the minority as far as being a believer? Don't you long for the day when everybody will love one another and there'll be peace on the earth? Don't you long for the day when you don't have to be afraid to travel anywhere you want to travel in the world and you don't have to be afraid of anybody or anyone? Don't you long for the day when there'll be no crime, no killing in the streets, no crack houses, no abortion clinics, no prisons, no poverty and children in parts of the world who are starving to death, no having to read contracts carefully, wondering what the small print might say and what somebody might be trying to pull over on you. Don't you long for days like that? As Isaiah said, the wolf and the lamb will lie down together and the child will play over the opening of the cobra's den. And Isaiah went on to say, nobody will do harm in all of my holy mountain. Doesn't it make you homesick to already be there? What's the most satisfying moments you've ever had in your life? Imagine that for a minute. The time that you've been the most content, the happiest, the most deep abiding satisfaction in your heart. Imagine when you experience that time. And then multiply that by a thousand times. No, not a thousand. Multiply that by... 10,000 times over. And you get a little bit of an image of what he's talking about here. Amen? I tell you what, that ought to be enough to make a Baptist shout. I don't hear any of you shouting. (laughs) Then the judgment of Satan, beginning in verse 7. We've got to hurry. When the thousand years are up, we see what is a strange event that takes place. We see Satan released. Why? Why is he allowed to make a comeback? Well, I can answer that in three words. I don't know. As one fellow said, wisely said, tell me why God allowed him to show up on the scene in the first place and I'll tell you why God allows him to show up on the scene the second time. My guess is there's a powerful lesson to learn. Remember who it is that goes into the millennium. It's the saints. A thousand years go by. Children are born to them. Remember now folks, the millennium is not heaven. Many generations are produced. Again, the the book of Isaiah talks about this. Many generations. Think of all the generations over a thousand years. Some of these enjoy the perfect rule of Christ, but they don't belong to Him. They submit to His rule and authority, but it is nothing more than an outward compliance. It's like the little fella who said to his mama, Okay, mama, I'll sit down on the outside because you commanded me to. But I want you to know I'm standing up on the inside. What does the world say today? The world says put a man in a good environment and he'll be good. Give him an education, a good job, he'll do good. But what does the Bible point out here? That's short-sighted, isn't it? It's just like Jeremiah said. The problem with men and women is much larger than our environment. The heart of man is desperately wicked. Here are people in a perfect environment. And given a chance after Satan is released to join in with the devil and once again rebel, guess what? They do that very thing. 
Satan gathers his followers together once again for one more conflict, but you'll notice the conflict's over before it even begins. He's thrown into the lake of fire. Aha, finally, no more devil. No devil in the first two chapters of the Bible, no devil in the last two chapters of the Bible. Lastly, I want you to see the sentencing of sinners. John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away, no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The sentencing of sinners. What does John see now? He sees this great white throne. It's great in its majesty. It's white symbolizing the complete purity and and holiness of him who sits upon it. So awesome was this uh, throne and so fearful that heaven and earth flee away. But there's nowhere to run and there's nowhere to hide. Who's on the throne? Jesus. The Bible says that the Father has committed all judgment over to the Son. And so he who came to be the Savior of mankind in his first advent is now the judge of all mankind. Who is there before the throne? The dead. Now remember folks, those who reigned with Christ were a part of the first resurrection. They were among the blessed. And so that leads one to the natural conclusion that these must be the unsaved dead from all the ages who now are raised in this second resurrection and stand before the Lord. In fact, in verse 13, it even says that Hades gave up the dead. These are those who have died without Jesus. They went immediately to torment where they are today, but they They've been awaiting the final judgment. Who we don't have here are the saved. They've already been judged at the Bema seat of Christ. They've already been pronounced as blessed. And they've been ruling and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. Now notice among the dead how John describes them here. The small and the great. The great, the emperors, the pharaohs, the caesars, the kings, the presidents, the queens, the, the rulers, all the mighty men and women of the earth, the rich and the powerful. Also there are the small, the poor, the underprivileged who never turn to Christ. The beggars, the nobodies, the masses from all over the globe of all the ages. There they all stand. No one escapes. No one. One by one. They're all there. What an awesome and fearful sight. Here they stand before the creator and judge of the universe. They stand before the one some of them have mocked him. Some have ignored him. Some told themselves they would would get right with him while they were still alive. They would get right with him the next week, the next month, in a year. When they got a little bit older, they would get right with him. They meant to get right with him if they'd only lived a little bit longer. But they died before they'd gotten right with him. 
Those who said one way is as good as another to make it to God. Those who have tried to say just live a good and a moral life and be, be better than everybody else. Those who thought they would just do nothing and take their chances one day. There they are. They're all there. And now it's too late. It's judgment day. There they stand. The one on the throne is just and holy and righteous. He's no respecter of men. He's fair. The books are open. Their deeds are examined. The verdict, they come up short. The Bible says there is none who is righteous, none who seeks God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Are there any standing there without guilt? No, because the books accurately record it so. But just in case there's a question, the book of life is opened. Could it be that one of these persons, their name would be recorded there? No. Because remember, those have already been raised in the first resurrection. And so it's only being shown here clearly that their names are not there. And each and every one standing there, one by one, is cast into the lake of fire. Not because God hated them or failed to make provision for them, but because they rejected His love and His grace and His mercy, His free offer of grace in Jesus Christ, His Son. They chose to live without Christ. They died without Christ. And now they go into an eternity without Christ. Oh God, give me one more minute. One more hour. One more day and I promise God I'll get saved. It's too late. Depart from me. I never knew you. And away they go. Forever and ever and ever. Heaven. A place where there's no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Hell, a place of intense suffering. Heaven, a place, a city with high walls and strong gates. Hell, a place of no security. Heaven, a place where there is no more night. Hell, a place where there is no more light. Heaven, a place where we will see His face and be like Him. Hell, a place of eternal separation from the one seated upon the throne. Heaven, a place of deep satisfaction with the river flowing from the throne of God. Hell, a place of intense dissatisfaction where those there will yearn in vain for what they can never ever have. Folks, life is but a vapor. Here, today, gone, tomorrow. And that's why the scripture says, Behold, today is the day of salvation. Are you ready? One of these days he's coming for his bride and we'll go up with him. Then after the tribulation, we come down with him and rule and reign for a thousand years. And then the second resurrection, those who never knew Christ, never responded to the saving message, they stand before the judge of all judges. And it's too late. Folks, don't kid yourself. The Bible says what it says and I believe it means what it says. God has told us over and over and over again to get ready. Over and over again there's the invitation to be saved. 
and steal. It just seems like it's a part of human nature. People want to gamble with their most prized possession. And that's their soul and their eternity. And they gamble it away and gamble it away and gamble it away. And if they keep doing that, they're going to find themselves in this second group. And there's no turning back. And there's no remedy. You say, preacher, are you trying to scare us? If I could scare you into heaven, I would. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. God is fair. God is just. And He's made provision for your salvation at Calvary's cross. But you've got to come by faith. And today, for all you know, may be the last opportunity you have to make that decision. Where are you going to be? Where are you going to stand? There may be some people in your family or among your friends you need to be praying for right now. God, I'm saved. Save them. Would you stand, please?